You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. bridegroom's friend. So the bridegroom's friend goes with the bridegroom's father and some offsider for the bride's dad shows up. So the two fathers are sitting in the room and the friends do all the negotiating. And then there's a bit of conferring on the side and the friends do all the negotiating. And the thought is that if everything goes pear-shaped, there's plausible deniability. We never, we never spoke about it. I've got no idea what you're talking about. Who are you people? I've never seen you before in my life. So the bridegroom's friend has a really... Thinks it was cold enough to come along. The bridegroom's friend plays a really critical role um, because without the bridegroom's friend, there's no wedding, there's no marriage. So John is the witness. He's the one who's mediating between the bride and the God as bridegroom, Israel as bride image is all the way through the Hebrew Bible. So. John is introduced and plays the role through the first couple of chapters of John as the bridegroom's friend. The bridegroom's friend helps to set up the wedding, um, brings the bridegroom to the bride's house for the bridal party, you know, introduces the whole thing, hangs out to the end of the wedding, and then kind of fades into the background. Um, the bridegroom can, the bridegroom's friend can never marry the bride. If the negotiations work out such that it doesn't come off, the bride, the law is the bridegroom's friend can never marry the bride. Because, you know, clearly there's, <laughs> there's a conflict of interest here, right? If that was ever allowed, there's all sorts of ways the negotiation could go pear-shaped. Um, and then once the wedding is accomplished, he must increase and I must decrease. The bridegroom's friend steps out of the picture and the bride and the bridegroom are left to do their thing. And if you think of the role of the Baptist in the early part of the Gospel of John, that's pretty much the narrative that we're seeing. So initially he's a witness to the negotiations, then he's the bridegroom's friend in the introduction. Where do the initial disciples come from? The community of the Baptist. They're summoned out of the community of the Baptist. So he introduces the bride, the body of the disciples, to the bridegroom, Jesus. And then there's a wedding at Cana. And then there's birth because we have the conversation with Nicodemus where he talks about being born again. And so the symbol of this formation of the household, that's not the story that's being told. That's not the, that's not the literal level of what's happening. We're not getting told the story in which the disciples are the bridegroom and Christ is the bride. But this symbol of the formation of the household is what's structuring the narrative. That someone's wedding happens, and then a birth happens. And then, you know, in this time, a wedding isn't finally complete until the birth of the first child, because that shows that the marriage is fertile. And then we start talking about life in the household. What is it to live in the household? There's this whole discussion about Ionosoi, the eternity life, the life in eternity. So there's a whole discussion of what that's like and how that works. So then, once the household is formed, what is it like to live in the household? And the very first concern that's foremost in everyone's minds, really, at this point is, okay, this is all great, this eternity life is all good, but, like, okay, so this is a few decades after the after Christ is has left, so people die. Right? You promised us eternal life, but people die. So what's up with that? So then we're offered the resurrection of Lazarus, um, which is the site for a whole conversation around how life is in eternity, and death isn't the end of that life in eternity, and you can have faith in that, and that's a certainty. And everyone seems 
calm by this moment. <laughs> um, there's a whole part of the book about the term kurie, Lord, in Greek, uh, which is the word that gets used for Adonai, for God, all the way through the Hebrew Bible. At the same, theologically, it's used to refer to God, and socially, it's the head of the household. The heads of households are addressed by the title kurie. So, it's a neat little, one neat little word that kind of says, yeah, so, you see what, you see what I did there, right? The household thing? Yeah, good. Um, the foot washing scene at the Last Supper at Passover, before the crucifixion, which is Christ welcoming everyone else into his house. So the washing of the feet is the, you've come in off the street, you're entering, entering into the house, and your feet are washed, normally by a servant, and so Christ, to emphasize this self-giving character of the kind of love he's talking about, I'm not talking about being the patriarch that heads the household. I'm talking about greater authority is emphasized by greater service, by greater self-givingness, by greater mutuality. And so I will kneel before you and wash your feet, and that's my welcome into you. So let me just exemplify what leadership means here. He talks about his death as enabling the return of the Spirit into the community. He talks at some length about the character of the way in which he uses the, the term indwelling, that God dwells in us as we dwell in God. And then he uses the parable of the, the story of the vine and the branches. And as long as the branches are attached to the vine, then everything's good. If the branches are detached, then the branch dies. So eternity life is inhering in Christ. But what does this inhering in Christ mean? after the death of Christ. He talks quite a lot about friendship, and uh, greater love hath no man, and then he laid down his life for his friends. Um, and so, switches. <laughs> household, 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 brothers and sisters, we're all good. Friendship's the greatest kind of love you can have. Let's talk some more about the household. So it's that thing of kind of switching symbols in order to, in order to kind of keep the mind stretched. So John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. A week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to them, then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach your reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. So that's the first of the post-resurrection appearances. Now it's an interesting sequence. 
for a bunch of reasons. It's not Thomas's first appearance in the Gospel of John. Thomas has made a couple of prior appearances. And each of Thomas's appearances, uh, um, there was the place uh, Jesus says, I go before you, um, you will follow me, I think. And then Thomas says, but if we don't know where you're going, how can we follow you? Go. Um, there's another point. I've forgotten the other. What's the other place in John where Thomas appears? He has some other... Oh, uh, when they go to visit Lazarus. Um, the, you know, Jesus has been called to Lazarus's sickbed, and he leaves it a couple... He, he did this for a couple of days before going, and they're going to visit Lazarus, and Thomas says, well, he's going to be dead by the time we get there. I mean, I don't know why we're bothering. Um, like, almost literally, he kind of says that. Uh, so, it's, again, it's a failure to understand what the purpose of the visit is. He's not understanding what's really going on. So Thomas is... But asking very reasonable questions. Very reasonable questions. <laughs> the same questions that a disciple in the present day ought to ask, if you're of a critical mind. And Thomas in this particular vignette is really interesting. <coughs> so there's a... Sorry? Thomas is reason. Thomas is reason, yeah. Thomas is... Thomas's reason drawn into a particular relationship. Thomas is a... Everyone's a symbol in this body gospel. No one's actually themselves. There are seven things that happen in that, that little vignette. The first is, it's on a Sunday. It happens on a Sunday. Uh, there's a lengthy passage in Mary Polo, which I commend to your reading to justify why it's said to be on a Sunday. Second, it's inside a house. Third, the doors are shut. They make quite a point of telling us that the doors are shut. Now, one way to read that is, it's a miracle because Jesus appears even though the doors are shut. Oh, yeah, okay. That's a literal reading of the text. But maybe something else is being said to us because the doors are shut. It looks knowingly this grace. Fourth, Christ comes. Fifth, signs of Christ's presence, Christ's real presence, are shown. And the verb balo plays a critical role in this. Sixth, there's a peace greeting that is uttered very definitively by Christ and assertively a couple of times, just to make sure you really noticed. And then seventh, the actions are brought to fruition by a response of faith from Thomas. My Lord and my God. That's a very non-Thomas statement, I've got to tell you. <laughs> That's not how Thomas has addressed Christ up until this point. That's the first moment where he really does it. Now, those seven points are all characteristic of the Eucharistic experience of the early church. The Eucharist was always held on a Sunday. The Eucharist were held in someone's house. The doors were always shut, and they're still shut, in an orthodox liturgy, the, the deacon cries, the doors, the doors, I think. What is the priest? It's the deacon. The deacon, yeah. Or the doorkeeper, if you've got one. Yep. I, I can't remember which gospel it appears in. It's, you know, uh, better. Um, but of course, the idea, you know, when you when you pray, when you when you when you meet the Father in prayer, when you do these things, you shut Matthew. your door. Matthew. Yeah, it's Matthew. You six, close the door. Matthew Matthew six. Six. You, you yeah. close you know, you close the door now, of course, that goes deeper into your senses and, and Hezekiah stuff. I just thought it was yep. to mention. So that's, that's 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 something like that. yeah. Christ comes in the real presence of the Eucharist and in the story. The sign of Christ's presence is shown, and that one's tricky. I'll dwell on that in a second. The peace greeting is given, and the, the demand, the Eucharistic demand, is to show the response of faith. My Lord and my God. <laughs> that's who is really actually present in the, in the Eucharist. Now, to dwell on five for a second, 
27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Uh, so in the Greek, uh, <laughs> bring the finger of thee here and see the hands of me, and bring the hand of thee and balo, ace, into the side of me. So balo doesn't just mean, you know, it's all these Renaissance paintings of things going. <laughs> it's more violent, it's ballistic. It's ballistic, it's yeah. balo, ballistic, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It's throw your hand into my side. Throw yourself into this. A dad saying, come on. <laughs> you can take it, kid. <laughs> Dr. Collow argues that what's being asked of Thomas here, and this is, this is really working with the symbol, is at one level he's saying, ground your doubt, show yourself that I'm not. Thomas doesn't put his hand on his side. Right? No, just Stop doubting and believe. Thomas simply says, my Lord and my God. Christ is asking him to throw himself into faith. To throw himself into me. This is the post-resurrection Jesus. Okay? So this is the moment at which Christ is saying, okay, so I'm present with you even though I've gone. I'm present with you in this way I have, this place I have prepared for you up to this point. So... Quit wondering, quit doubting, stop thinking about whether this works and how. Stop trying to pin it down to specifics on how this works. Stop getting fiddly with me on exactly how, who dwells in who and how that functions. Zzz. Throw yourself into it. Make a response of faith. Which isn't believe an absurd thing because God said so. It's throw yourself wholeheartedly into what's going on here. And make the, make the response you think you should make. And Thomas's response is, my Lord and my God. The role that Thomas plays, the beloved disciple stands in and is an exemplar of the ideal member of the community. Thomas is us. There's various us's in the Gospel of John. Peter's us from time to time. <laughs> but in this case, Thomas is us. As his grace said, how could a reasoning person not ask, what do you mean God's present in the Eucharist? What are you talking about? That's insane. What do you mean God dwells in me and I dwell in God? This makes any sense. The, uh, well, this is, this is something I go on, um, you know, cover a little bit tomorrow. But I mean, the thing about the, the Eucharist, I mean, you have people who part ways with Jesus when he says, you know, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and this is a hard teaching. You know, who can bear it? We're out of here. And, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's rough. Yeah. It's crazy talk. Yeah. But Thomas is us. Thomas is, Thomas is the ordinary person applying their regular critical faculties to the matter. And Christ asks him, okay, that's all good. Throw yourself into this. And his response, the beautiful response, that transcendent response, is to go, okay. I'll throw myself in. My lot's with you. <laughs> it's the moment where Thomas gets it. The moment where Thomas gets it. Faith in Greek, pistoion, means literally to set one's heart upon, to, to place oneself in, to throw oneself into it. Credo in Latin, to believe, where we get the word creed, is related to court, to heart. 
It's to set your heart upon something, to throw your lot in with, to show faith with, to stick with through thick and thin. That's the characteristic posture <laughs> of a Joanite in the household, if anything nails it. I don't know what, if anything nails it better than that, I don't quite know what it is. It's to love and to have faith. Not to believe abstract propositions, but to throw oneself wholeheartedly into this place that has been prepared. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we have the capacity to be touched as well. So, that's the kind of, that's the story. Um, I hope that's open enough to kind of give you a sense of the sort of richness that's, that's potential in there. Um, you know, the thing... <laughs> Look, I'll go through this and then I just want to say some personal stuff. Um, Dr. Collin makes a, a range of points. It's, it's great in the second book. The first book, she kind of... It's a the first book's a theological book. The second book sort of says, OK, household of God, blah, 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 here's a great argument, it's terrific. Um, I feel like, you know... This kind of makes some challenges to the way we do church, and I, I, I probably feel like I should tease them out. And she makes these sort of four points at the end of the book. Um, and I read it, and I went, that's really good. She's in Melbourne. So I emailed her and said, you know, hi. Just been reading your book, I think it's really awesome, got a few questions, I don't know. How do you feel about having a phone call? Um, so she very generously gave me about 40 minutes on the phone. And I said, so you made a range of points that were sort of a, kind of like, a, pretty much a direct critique to the way we do church in the in the 21st century. Um, you know, you're a nun. I figure probably there's some things you could have said that maybe you didn't feel quite comfortable saying in the book, so what is he trying to say? Um, and, and she said some stuff to me on the phone, which I'll, I'll talk about in a sec. In the book, she says, what's shown to us by this image of the household in the Gospel of John is a kind of leadership which is non-patriarchal in that classic sense of patriarchy. And it's non-hierarchical. It's a... It's a mutuality of indwelling love amongst the people in the community in which faith and love are the example that's being set, the leaderly example that's being set. And the people who set that ahead of anyone else are the women. The Samaritan woman at the well, Mary of Bethany, Mary Magdalene, Mary Christ's mother, um, and the beloved disciple who, by that character's nature, is both man and woman because it's a it's a filling character. Um, she makes the point that whenever you get a temple cult that's all caught up with purity and you know, particular sort of professionalised priesthood that does, does uh, you know, extraordinarily detailed actions that require weeks of preparation and all this kind of thing, you're kind of writing women out of the story. Really? That, that, if you've got to look after, if you've got kids and a family, you can't participate in the temple cult. It, it's, it's sort of a, it's a necessity of the way that social dynamics have just worked over time. So as soon as you're talking temple cults, which is where the church went in the 4th century, the cathedral and, and um, all that sort of life, you're moving towards a masculine priesthood. That's just the nature of the beast. If you're at the house church end of things, which is where the church was for the first couple of centuries, and that's the depiction of what Christ instituted in the Gospel of John, it's, it's really pretty firm. All the major stuff happens in somebody's home. <laughs> then you're talking about an equality of leadership between men and women. This households are run by both together. It's one of those big households only works because each of the genders takes on their roles in keeping the household working. Or everyone in the household takes on their roles, and, and by nature that's, that's people of both genders. 
That's the second one. So Dr. Collo speculates, Mary, let's say at this point, because she's talking personally, really speculates that, so maybe there's some things here about things like the size of community and, you know, how big ass the Eucharist is, <laughs> stuff like that. Maybe there's some sort of tensions there. The third thing that she says is that this is really, I mean, it's, you know this if you know the Gospel of John, but she just really drives the point home. The deeper you get into this, the more clear it is that this is a Gospel of God's love and self-revelation. It's a love story in which God's love is described in rich and beautiful detail over and over and over again using various different symbols. Um, and then we're invited to join into that loving relationship. Then it's a relationship. And there's a variety of ways in which Jesus describes and draws the disciples and the reader of the book. Because lots of these things kind of open out into, and you're with me, right? Are you guys you coming too? Right? Come on in. I'm drawn into this, this loving relationship of self-revelation. Self-revelation because this is how God is known. The household is how God is known. Not a reparation for sin, you know? <laughs> there's, no, there's really none of that through the whole gospel. It's really sort of dodges that territory entirely. Christ sidesteps every time when someone tries to pin him down. Which are the worst sins? What's the best virtue? How do we, you know, he's constantly going, well, you know, look over there. <laughs> look, an elephant! What came out of my relationship with Mary Collow on the phone, and I think this really speaks directly to my experience of being a Joanite, is that the topos of God and that word means the, the location of God in the world. The topos of God, as depicted for us, by the time that seventh step of creation is tetelestai on the cross, it is finished. The seventh step becomes finished on the cross. And Christ gives over his spirit. And the spirit comes to dwell in the household itself. And that we are called to throw ourselves into that life of faith and love in community, that self-giving, intimate mutuality with each other, is what's being pointed to by the Gospel, is that the topos of God is not the temple in Jerusalem, it's not the peak of Mount Gerizim, it's not the physical presence of Christ, because that's withdrawn from us. The topos of God is the sacredness of human relationship, and not in a general, we're all a family, rah, rah, rah kind of a way, but in the very specific eye-to-eye, face-to-face, human relationship between individual human beings. In this, God indwells. God indwells in me, and God indwells in this. That's where we worship God. That, to me, is the hinge point of what it is to be a Joanite in the 21st century, is recognizing that sacredness. Not saying it only exists in contemplation, in, within me, I'm not saying it only exists in the beautiful rituals of the sacraments, but that it exists in our community, in this person-to-person -person beautiful intimacy that we, we carry with each other. That's the mystery of the Jonah Church to me. And I stole my homily for tomorrow before the consecration. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> This is a weird church. I went to my first conclave in San Francisco to get ordained. And I met a bunch of people, and I spent a few days with them. It was very nice. It was a great time. I went back in Wisconsin. And when I met 
you know, and I, you know, we communicated online, we spent some time in campfire and whatever. But then I came back to Conclave in Wisconsin, and when I met everyone again, I was meeting my family. There was a total uncontroversial givenness to those relationships, which only happens with family. Yeah. It's the certainty that these relationships are absolutely secure, and there's absolutely no way we can argue and bitch and fight and moan about obscure points of theology and politics, and we and, yeah. and we do. <laughs> you know, this church is not. <laughs> this church has all the fights you'd expect of a family. But the certainty that underlies that is the absolute rock-solid, secure certainty that this is the household of God. And that the agape that underlies this holds the whole thing together no matter what. So that, <laughs> I would say, is the real secret of St. John. <laughs> the absolute mundane real secret of St. John. That's the end of what I wanted to say. Right. First off, thank you. Uh, that, that's wonderful. And, uh, that was great.